Why, hello. I'm Natalie Zett, and welcome to Flower in the River. Flower in the River is a podcast about a book I wrote of the same name. And that book is about the Eastland disaster that took place in 1915 in Chicago and how that long-ago tragedy affected my family for generations. I'll talk about writing and family history and what to do when the supernatural comes into your life when you're innocently doing a family history research project. Come on and let's have some fun with this. Hello and welcome to Episode 4 of Flower in the River, the podcast. Now that we've set the stage in the last few episodes, we can actually dive into the story of the first chapter, which is entitled, A Family Tale Untold. As the scene opens, we see a family that would be the fictional representation of my great-grandmother and her children in their living room in a small worker's cottage in an area that today is known as Little Village, Chicago. They've just received the news that a ship that was chartered for the Western Electric Picnic has capsized in the Chicago River. At first, they were running around frantically with the other neighbors in the streets trying to get information. Everyone had someone who'd gone to the Western Electric Picnic. But now they're emotionally spent and they've returned to their home. They've collapsed into the chairs and the couch and are waiting for their sister and their daughter, a 19-year-old girl who left early that morning for the picnic. As each minute passes, they realize that she is probably not coming back home. The first chapter is a weird paradox, and I'll admit it. It seems to begin and end right away. But as the music group Semisonic wrote in their song, Closing Time, from every new beginning is some other beginning's end. And this was an end for the family. But it was also the beginning of something else. And I'm going to read you a passage from the opening scene in this chapter. Stillness wafted over the Pfeiffer household for the first time with seven children, various aunts and uncles, and an endless stream of neighbors, the house had never known quiet until that day. The Pfeiffer children heard it first from neighbors, who heard it from other neighbors, who heard the newsies screaming in the streets. What they heard was some version of this story. Picnic ship capsized in the river with people aboard. I then stopped the story. I know that seems abrupt, but I needed to do this to get the attention and then move the family immediately to earlier times, the Pfeiffer household in earlier times. Why? Well, I wanted to introduce them to you and also give you a deeper sense of who they were, what their personalities were like, what their days were like. Now, Figuring out who they were required, one, a very detailed family history document, courtesy of my Aunt Pearl, so that document was my launch pad. Two, it required a mountain of research, 
and there was little to be found about the Eastland disaster in the late 1990s when I was putting this story together. 3. Lots and lots of road trips and flights from Minneapolis-St. Paul to Chicago and even Wisconsin. And 4. A willingness to let go of present time and figure out how to immerse myself in their time, to know them, to understand them, and to learn how to recreate them via the written word. They belonged to me, but I knew nothing about them nor their times. They were people who were more than names and dates in a family history, that's for sure. They, like so many of their neighbors in this part of Chicago, were mostly immigrant families from Central and Eastern Europe. Many of them were laborers and they worked for Western Electric. They had good times, bad times, fun times, ordinary and boring times, and they worked very hard from what I could tell. I desperately wanted to know Martha, my great-aunt Martha, my grandmother's younger sister, the woman who was killed on the Eastland. And once I knew Martha, I wanted to share her brief life with you. During my research, I heard enough stories about Martha's personality to create a few interesting scenes for her in the book. According to those who remembered her, Martha was quite the joker, particularly where her sister Louisa was concerned. Louisa, who was wound pretty tight, was the perfect foil for the rest of the kids. So what I did was create a childhood scene where Martha had taken a dead frog and slipped it into her sister Louisa's shoe. Louisa had a meltdown while the rest of the kids laughed at her, and Martha eventually had Louisa laughing again. Martha was also, let's just say, high-spirited, and she got into some trouble when she gave a black eye and bloody nose to an older and much bigger boy who had been bullying and beating up Martha and her younger siblings. The bully's mother was so incensed that Martha struck her bully son that she slapped Martha and blamed Martha for everything. Martha's revenge plot was thwarted by another one of her brothers, Darnit. Martha had a lot of interests. She liked to paint and draw, for example, and to go to picture shows. And she liked to ride the bus and the train with her sister, my grandmother, Annie. Martha and Annie also spent many summers taking the train from Chicago to a place that I called Falling Brook, Wisconsin. This was where their grandmother, along with various aunts and uncles, lived and farmed. The girls loved working on the farm. They especially loved learning from the indigenous people on the land. For example, the indigenous people taught them how to dye wool with berries. It was also fun for the girls to have lots of cousins who were near their age to hang out with. Martha's big dream, though, was to travel the world. But when their father died in 1914, she and most of the other children, the ones who were young adults, had to pitch in to help their widowed mother and younger siblings. Martha worked as a domestic for Judge John Stelk. Judge Stelk, who actually was a real person, lived across the street from them. 
The boy that Martha thought she might marry married someone else, and her sister Annie, who worked for Western Electric, wanted to give Martha a break. Annie wasn't feeling well again with her second pregnancy, and thus gave Martha the tickets for the boat excursion that would take thousands of mostly Western Electric employees across Lake Michigan to the picnic. After my Aunt Martha was killed, her sister Annie went to the makeshift morgue to identify her. That would be the 2nd Regiment Armory. They needed the 2nd Regiment Armory to hold all of the bodies. Again, in total, there were 844 people killed on the Eastland. As an aside, the 2nd Regiment Armory would someday be home to the Oprah Winfrey Studios. Here's another passage from the book. Amid the pandemonium, Annie stood and stared out the window. Without them asking, she knew she was designated to carry out the deed. No one slept that night. Instead, they kept vigil. Sunday morning, Annie moved her shoulder and winced in pain. She hadn't remembered falling asleep in the living room chair, but she must have. Others were still asleep, and Annie silently moved around the children on the floor and her mother on the couch, grateful that the older woman was resting. Quietly putting on her hat, she carefully opened and closed the front door. The sun glared. How dare it shine today, she wondered. Walking to the corner of 23rd Street in Sacramento, she saw the newsboys waving the Chicago Herald Morning Edition. Martha's photo shared the front page with many others, with the inscription, Missing, written underneath. No, no, she was not missing. Annie would find her. Martha will like this being on the front page of the newspaper. It will make her laugh. Walking to the streetcar stop, Annie observed dozens already there, waiting to make the unholy journey. There must have been extra streetcars operating that day, for one arrived just as she queued up, and Annie wandered to the back. A man stood, offering his seat. She moved to the outside, fixated on the beautiful morning sky, swallowing hard. A neighbor Mrs. Z, as they called her, sat alongside her. Oh, Annie, cried the woman. My Rudy and his wife and children were all on the boat. Annie took the woman's hand. Our Martha, she explained, and could say no more. The man over there said we have to go to the armory, said Mrs. Z. The second regiment armory, the man said, sitting in front of Annie. Why the armory, said Annie. There's so many of them, so many people. They had to have a place big enough, said the man. So that is where we're going, said Mrs. Z. Yes, said the man. The streetcar jolted and shuddered like a snappish horse, rebelling against its destination. Annie worried that this jerking and bouncing would cause her to lose the baby she was carrying. That's the end of the passage, and it's important again to emphasize that Martha was not a Western Electric employee and should not have been on that ship. 
Again, my grandmother was the Western Electric employee. She was in a marriage that was dissolving at that point, but she was pregnant and didn't want to go on a ship. She wasn't feeling well, so she thought, as I probably would have thought. She'd do her 19-year-old sister a favor, and she gave her the tickets to go on the picnic instead. How did my grandmother feel? The weight of guilt and grief remained with her until her very early death. My Aunt Pearl, who was the original teller of the story, and my grandmother's oldest daughter, said, It shattered her heart, and her shattered heart could not carry her for very long. In the meantime, Martha's mother, my great-grandmother, seemed to have a breakdown. She'd already lost two children in infancy, and her husband died just the year prior, and then Martha was killed. Great-grandma began a ritual of walking each day to the streetcar stop, and she would stand there and wait all day for the streetcar to arrive and for Martha to get off, and this took place long after Martha was buried. Great-grandma eventually stopped doing this, but I guess it took a long time. Being in Chicago was unbearable for my grandmother Annie, and a few years after the Eastland, my grandmother finally escaped from Chicago and from her first marriage. She also left her teenage children, a boy and the girl that you've already met, that would be Pearl. They stayed behind to live with Annie's mother. Annie returned to Johnstown, Pennsylvania to marry a second time, and a few years later, she gave birth to a baby who would grow up and become my mother. Things were looking good for Annie and her husband until 1934 when she collapsed in the kitchen and died a few days later of a heart attack. She was just 44, and her baby, my mother, was three. My Aunt Pearl always blamed her mother's early death on the guilt that Annie felt over giving her sister the tickets. The first chapter of the book is what I call thin fiction, in that most of the characters, including their names, are based on my family. Once the first chapter ends and we move into the 1990s, then the fiction starts to thicken up again. Most of these characters are loosely based on family and friends, with lots of name changes and lots and lots of combinations of personalities, let's say. The story of the Eastland and the Pfeiffer family seemed destined for oblivion after the death of Annie, except that Annie's daughter grew up, married, and also had a baby girl. That girl would grow up to be the most unlikeliest of story keepers. We'll continue the story in the next episode, and thank you for joining me. Hey, that's it for this episode, and thanks for coming along for the ride. Please subscribe or follow so you can keep up with all the episodes. For more information, please go to my website. That's www.floweritheriver.com, and I'll have that and more information in the show notes. I hope you consider buying my book because I owe people money, and I'm just kidding about that. But the one thing I'm not kidding about is that this podcast and my book are dedicated to the memory of the 844 who died on the Eastland. Goodbye for now. <laughs>